Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. And speaking of disagreements, it was a busy week last week, right before Thanksgiving, at the Supreme Court, where the court, in a divided 5-4 decision, announced that it was blocking New York's implementation of restrictions on church attendance. Here to discuss, as always, is my friend, Richard Epstein. Richard, did you read the court's decision? Well, I did, and I certainly read accounts of it, and it's a decision that I think uh, will indicate just how difficult and how much disarray there is in this particular area. Let me just start with a very brief kind of statement, which is when you're dealing with these First Amendment issues, there are two ways in which to approach them. One is a categorical way, which says we don't care what happens in the rest of the world. It's just not appropriate under these circumstances to tell religious organizations that they can only have 10 people in a red zone and 25 people in a blue zone or or orange zone because what we've done is we've looked at the situation on the ground and we don't think the condition with respect to the health care does that. That's a very strong claim, but it requires the Supreme Court to basically weigh in on a police power issue in which, generally speaking, they've been extremely deferential. But the longer this thing goes on, my prediction is the less deferential day and the lower courts will be get. The other way in which to phrase the same thing, which got a lot of support from uh, very pointed uh, concurrence by Justice Gorsuch, uh, said, look, uh, you have all these organizations, and we can't tell you what the right and the wrong answer is abstractly, but we know that you cannot decide you're going to shut down a church if you're going to leave open a liquor store. And so what they do is they introduce a kind of a discrimination test, an equal protection dimension into the situation. Uh, That claim essentially is not nearly as powerful theoretically but it's much more potent um, in terms of its practical impact. And my guess is these cases continue to go on. It will be in that vein rather than in the sort of general vein. But the larger question that lies behind all of this is how confident are we that deference to uh, legislative behavior, or in this case, single administrative behavior, is going to take place as this goes on? And this is, I think, one of the points that was not stressed in the case but will become larger. Uh, we've now been at this thing for eight months. And as far as I can tell, Governor Cuomo has not published a single position paper which explains what his particular standards are and why he has chosen them. He's given us what his rules and his tests will be, but he's never taken any testimony and he's never given a public statement. And so the question I'm going to ask is a kind of a quasi-administrative procedure question is, will the court, when it comes up the next time, start to inject yet another element into this case of procedural due process claiming that since liberty interests are clearly involved by shutting down religion religious organization, you have to essentially go through a process in order to get to the conclusion. So, Adam, as far as I can tell, this is the opening round. Those orders, I gather, have been superseded by changes in events. We don't know what's going to happen next, but uh, since I'm a lousy prophet, perhaps you're a better one, and you could explain to everybody exactly what you think is going to happen with this and similar cases as things start to move forward. Well, I think you put your finger on it in that this issue of, I mean, it's not quite equal protection, but but discrimination um, in the form of burdening religious organizations more heavily than commercial enterprises is probably the most salient p- argument for purposes of litigation. It doesn't get to sort of first principles about what are the powers of government over religion per se, even in a, a crisis like this. Um, it really is the most fact-sensitive of all the claims that could be taken. Um, But I think it's probably the right way for the court to go. 
Um, in, in terms of administrative law, I mean, as, as you know, and I know and a lot of our listeners know, um, normal standards of administrative law aren't going to apply here since uh, this isn't a federal administrative agency. And it, yeah, you know, presidents are normally exempt from administrative from the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, the court recognized that years ago in a case called Franklin versus Massachusetts because um, there's something fundamentally different about the chief executive's role and the administrative agency's role. Um, even setting aside the fact that these aren't federal agencies, maybe the court would give a little bit more deference to the governor versus other parts of the, of the government, so long as he can come up with a reasonable explanation. And here the court pointed out a couple of times in its decision, there just isn't any contradiction to the claims that are being made here by the religious organizations, no real explanation that can justify this kind of burden on religious organizations um, rather than more, as we'd say, narrowly tailored um, explanations. The court points out that this is not the first case of its kind to reach the Supreme Court. There were two earlier cases uh, this year, Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley against Sisolak and South Bay United Pentecostal versus Newsom. Both times the court refused to grant preliminary injunctive relief um, that was being requested. Here the court says in this new five-justice majority with Justice Barrett, effectively, this, this case is different. Specifically, the court says uh, they, namely the New York restrictions, are far more restrictive than any COVID-related restrictions that have previously come before the court. Maybe that's true, but I think what's really salient here is is the change of personnel and the passage of time. Now that we're here, as you pointed out, months into this, the question is, when will the court be less deferential? The court said in its majority opinion, um, quote, members of this court are not public health experts, and we should respect the judgment of those within special ex- well, those with special expertise and responsibility in this era area. But they add, even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. I would just point out, in addition to the, this opinion and the dissents we saw in those two earlier cases, we've also seen in recent weeks a speech by Justice Alito um, at the Federal Society's National Lawyers Convention. It was you know, just online this year because of the COVID. Um, but Justice Alito's opinion um, which reiterated points that he made in, in or, sorry, his speech, which reiterated points he made in an earlier judicial opinion, really emphasized that at some point the courts do need to push back against just the assertion of power without any real explanation behind it on the part of those who are asserting the power. And it seems that the court may have reached its limit, at least in this case. Yeah, I have another way of looking at this. Um, what you said is that, well, this is a governor. It's not the same as an administrative agency. And of course, the governor is the analogy to the president. Suppose what we start to do now is to think of this in the framework of Youngstown against Sawyer, against the seal seizure cases. And in those particular situations, remember, there were three states of the world, uh, one where the president essentially worked with the backing of the legislature, the other where he acted on his own initiative, and the third where he acted in contradiction to what the legislation had provided. And in that particular case, uh, given the history associated with the uh, National Labor Relations Act and so forth, uh, what we did is we found that that was a case in which it seemed as though that Congress had denied uh, the president this particular power, even if by implication. Our case here uh, seems to me that the legislature has been completely inert. 
occurred. So we have the president acting on his own power, which means that we're sort of in the middle tier, if you take that analysis. And once you're in that middle tier, it seems to me that you can't simply say it's per se legal. And so all the arguments that you just make, we've gone long. We've had time to think about this. Uh, let's hear what your experts have to say. Let's hear what people on the other side of this particular issue had to say. It's not done. And what's so clear about Cuomo and other governors is they're not prepared to say, well, what we're going to do now is put up a bulletin board. And we would like people to state their position on how it is that these things ought to work and how they ought to operate. Or what the governor is prepared to do, which I don't think is healthy for a democracy, is to listen to quiet pleas by various groups and individuals who seem to come forward and say, well, look, will you tweak this situation a little bit? We have a rule which says that institutions have to shut down if a certain number of COVID cases occur. Well, if you're a large university, are you one institution or is each separate school an institution or is each separate building an institution and so forth? And there's a lot of this stuff which I'm told is going around uh, at the subterranean level. And I think that's very bad for government because now what you do is you get people pulling clout and trying to get special dispensation and you don't get a public policy. So suppose somebody now comes forward in the next case and starts to look around and says, you look at this crazy quilt pattern and you see these irregularities. One illustration of that is we know that the mayor of New York City shut down the schools because he cut a deal with the teachers union that when the rate of COVID in the general population exceeded a certain rate on tests, uh, then we were going to close it down. He's now being forced to open it up again. Uh, But Adam, I don't know what your view is, but my view is that it's a completely illegal delegation of your police power, which removes any protection whatsoever. If you make an agreement with a private group whose own self-interest is to stay home as long as possible, it seems to me that you cannot claim to be acting as the government if you, as it were, delegated a substantial chunk of your police power uh, to an institution, a union, uh, which is to some extent adverse to you and everything that it stands for. Am I off the wall here or does that sound like the soul of good sense? Well, I'm not. I'm no fan of what a lot of the teachers unions have done in a variety of states. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, just because the governor agrees with the teachers union in this case doesn't mean it's a delegation. And I'm not sure how you would. Peer well, I don't into think them. they agreed. I think they, they ended into an agreement with. Right. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. But I'm, I'm saying that I'm not sure that the governor involuntarily going along with those terms I'm not sure that he delegates away his power to change his mind. I, mean, I just don't know. I agree with that. He yeah. reserves the power to change his mind. But the question is the original decision tainted by virtue of the fact that he yielded to them by way of a, an unenforceable but nonetheless very potent agreement. You know, there is a rule that you're not allowed to transfer the police power to a private agency whose interests are diametrically in conflict with those of the government or at least opposed to it. And in this particular case, I mean, it's an informal arrangement that was reversible, but it's pretty clear that if it had not been for the pressure of the teachers union, you would have never seen the case for shutting down the elementary schools in New York City. Um, And so I think in effect, that's a serious problem. Uh, I don't know if it's going to create any sort of substantive liability, but when one of these things come up again in court, if this is the pattern that's followed, I think the level of deference that's going to be given is going to be lower. And I think the rate of the intervention is going to be more rapid. Whether whether we frame it in terms of the non-delegation doctrine or I think just more generally this idea of governors or policymakers in general not really wielding their power carefully, responsibly, with deliberation, 
um, and with accountability. Uh, however, we end up framing that, and whether it's you know the governor is in effect delegating powers to the teachers' union, or whether he's just exercising it poorly himself, I think there is just the squandering of of respect and deference that the governor might ordinarily get in this case. The fact that the governor can change his mind so often, he changed his mind here and the court says, we're still going to litigate it in some ways. One, one sort of echo that I see in this case is from a case. I can't remember if it was last year. The, I guess it was from the last term. It, it was the, the New York, um, the New York city gun gun laws, right? This was the case where Sheldon Whitehouse and Senate Democrats were filing a brief threatening the yes. court not to decide the case. In that case, at, at the oral argument, Justice Alito asked my favorite question that any justice has asked in years. Uh, New York, sort of realizing they might be in some trouble with the case, um, that before the case could be argued, they, they tried to pull down the rules um, to moot the case. And in the course of oral argument, Justice Alito asked the lawyer for New York, you know, so you've, you've pulled down the rules. Would you say that your city is less safe than it was beforehand? It was a great catch twenty two. The lawyer couldn't admit that the city was was less was was not less safe because the city was never going to say that it was endangering the people. But on the other hand, they uh, they they couldn't say that the that the rules that had been pulled down didn't add any value in terms of safety. And I think Alito had really put his finger on the real issue, which is that so often these these local jurisdictions can just impose rules and change them on the fly and reimpose them without really thinking them through and giving a justification. Sometimes that's just not susceptible to judicial yeah. oversight, but sometimes it is. And this seems to be the exact kind of case where it is. I think it's going to become more susceptible to it. Yes. And so then the question is, what is it? If you start looking for the constitutional hook, it's not that obvious. It's the state government, not the federal government, which creates a little bit of insulation under principles of federalism. It turns out that it's not an individual decision in a particular case. So it's not as though any individual person has been deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It's sort of a general police power regulation. And I think the way in which this thing is going to come up is it's going to be that the inherent police power, which has normally been ceded to the states and to the governors without question, including emergency powers, uh, that's going to wear thin. I mean, an emergency is something that happens, an earthquake today, and it's gone in two weeks. This is now an eight-month emergency. What happens is Cuomo already unilaterally was allowed to extend his power for six months under existing legislation. But now, if, if this drags on until March of next year, is he going to have to get legislative approval for or can he just declare and second an independent emergency? I think the notion of emergency is not going to be sufficiently plastic enough when the courts get through with it that he's going to have to give some sort of answer. And as you and I both know, uh, in virtually every area of uncertain public force, uh, the level of deference that's afforded to administrative officials or to presidents or to governors is key to the way this thing comes out. And I see the discretion need of moving back against the governor in this case uh, pretty broad spread. I also think the public uneasiness is about coming. Uh, one of the things I take away from the near record levels of travel at Thanksgiving against all the encouragement is that people have sort of had it up to here with the way this thing is going. They see all the restrictions. They don't see any particular payoff from it. And so that what's happening is you're getting a lot of individual rebellion, which means that the level of popular acquiescence uh, to these rather draconian measures is likely to go down in the future. So that's where I stand on 
this, and it's obviously this is maybe not chapter one, but it's not the last chapter in what promises to be a very complicated saga, lasting at least as long as the pandemic seems to have legs. Just a couple other dimensions of this, and a place where maybe you and I would disagree. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far the court's reasoning in this decision is going to carry to non-religion contexts. I think. I don't. I think it is important that this is a religious issue. That it does, therefore, you know, raise the specific text of the of the First Amendment. In his opinion, Justice Gorsuch really highlighted the fact that this was not simply a matter of liberty, you know, defined in generalities. Um, but but the specific protections of the First Amendment, he said in one of my favorite lines in his opinion, he's you know, hearkening back to the Jacobson, um, the, the, the Massachusetts case from a century ago that everybody cites. He, he says, even if judges may impose emergency restrictions on rights that some of them have found hiding in the Constitution's penumbras, it does not follow that the same fate should befall the textually explicit right to religious exercise. And he really stressed that the Jacobson case was sort of a, it, it seems very fam- familiar of the Lochner era, um, you know, an argument for individual liberty that was less rooted in specific constitutional protections. And so it's not clear to me that Justice Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, um, or others, um, Alito, Barrett, would necessarily go as far in non-religion contexts as they have here. So essentially, if you had a uniform set of restrictions, the special place of religion drops out and everything else goes, hey, here's the counter-argument, which I have only very modest confidence in. Uh, There has long been a kind of a tradition that says when you start imposing regulations that lead to wholesale bankruptcy of private businesses who have done nothing wrong for themselves, you have to give a little bit more protection because the total wipeout counts as a deprivation of liberty or property under the due process clause with its substantive component. That has not been stressed that far in this particular case, Uh, but I think there's a story in the New York Times or one of the papers, maybe Wall Street Journal, which said 30 percent of small business in New Jersey have shuttered their doors forever and so forth. And I do think that at some point, if this thing continues going, in which the shutdowns are savage and the consequences on controlling the virus are modest, if none at all, and the business suffering starts to take place and the collateral consequences to people from bankruptcy, from shell shock and all sorts of other things get large enough even the global claim might start to work. I mean, if you recall, there's a, a lot of disagreement about how we think about the um, the situation here, and there's this Barrington, Great Barrington Declaration, which they stress the collateral consequences from the restrictions are worse than the disease itself. Right now, that's a minority position. Uh, give it another month or two, and I'm not sure how this thing is going to play out, because I think the law is going to be, to some extent, a victim to some extent, a victim of the way in which the disease plays out in the future. And if it turns out that masks are not doing the job, as seems to be the case now, other forms of restrictions also seem to be ineffective, that the virus, as it were, seems to have a life of its own, Uh, then if it turns out there's no confidence whatsoever that the restrictions work, that, quote, science dictates them, it may well be that the Great Barrington position will start to get a bit of constitutional legs, even though right now it doesn't have them. Just one other thing about this case, at least, I want to focus on the Chief Justice's dissent, um, because I do think there's something to be said for this. Chief Justice Roberts is very, very wary of the court um, granting preliminary injunctive relief. 
Um, just for re- re- our listeners who don't you know know this, this case that came to the court, it's not been fully briefed and argued in the merits like a normal case. This is still at its preliminary stages in the lower courts. And what happened now is just the court deciding whether um, the court should should grant relief to to prevent enforcement of the governor's orders while the litigation is pending. And Chief Justice Roberts stressed in his dissent that that's why he would not grant this relief, that he would want things to go through the full process of litigation, even if on an accelerated basis, before the court grants relief. And that's a theme of Chief Justice Roberts's opinions over the last few years in what we often call the shadow docket. The chief has been very, very wary of the lower courts and the Supreme Court jumping in with preliminary injunctions that immediately freeze um, government action in place while the litigation is pending. And I think we shouldn't give short shrift to that argument. I actually am very, very sympathetic to it. Jonathan Adler of Case Western uh, Law School and also of of Reason.com's Volat Conspiracy blog has written about the Chief Justice's approach, his wariness of this preliminary injunctive relief, And I do think it's very, very dangerous for the courts to jump in so energetically to freeze things in place. The the, the classic notion of judges, as we saw in the Federalist and Tocqueville and everything going on into the 20th century, was that the courts would would not sort of jump gleefully into the arena. Rather, they would only decide cases when absolutely absolutely ripe and, and necessary. And I think the chief should worry in general about the courts springing into action this way because it changes both the way the court goes about its work in this accelerated basis, but also it changes the way that the court's work is perceived when the courts are becoming as energetic a branch of government as the executive branch. Do I have this all wrong? You're not wrong. It's the question is, uh, these emergencies mean that every day counts tenfold of what they would under ordinary circumstances. And so his argument is going to be met with the fact that, well, we've deferred now for eight months on this stuff and nothing much has happened. So at this particular point, the delay becomes critical. So the normal wariness ought to be displaced. I mean, all injunctive relief has the danger of being too quick or too slow. And you're trying to figure out what's in the middle and is just right. And it turns out there's just going to be more and more disagreement as to the way this thing starts to go. But I have no doubt that the chief justice on this regard is actually somewhat different from the three liberals, whose general position is we just don't want to get involved in this at all. And it's not a question of the state of the record. It's just a question of the fact that public health issues are too important and too complicated to be subject to judicial oversight. And I think that position is going to be gone. So uh, I think we should probably get on to our next topic. But the last question I'd leave you this is, is, is just simply, uh, do you think if this were a permanent injunction that Roberts would switch to the other side if it had been fully briefed? Yeah, I, I think if this were the, the end of the merits um, case and, and, and there was a permanent injunction, I do think Justice Roberts's uh, opinions would be uh, up for grabs. Um, you, you, made, you made a point at the end about the, the, the liberal justices just not wanting to get involved in second-guessing COVID regulations. That's mostly true, but not completely true, because if this were an abortion regulation, then the court would look at it very, very differently. Well, that's and, because they regard it as a preferred right. Yeah, and I think that's what Gorsuch is really teasing them over when he refers to the, the, the rights that are hidden in penumbras. He's not talking about economic liberty alone. He's talking about all those other liberties, uh, including the right to abortion, which seem to get uh, you know, preferred status over just basic rights yeah. of, of religion. 
okay, good enough. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, um, it hasn't heard any cases arising from the election yet, but it could. Are you keeping an eye on what's happening in Pennsylvania? I'm keeping an eye on it, and I have to say that this whole thing has got uh, the potential for a major uh, sort of dislocation. Uh, the first and simplest summary is all the litigation that has taken place thus far uh, for the Trump administration has been a complete bust. Uh, the most recent opinion was by Steph Bebos in the Third Circuit, who essentially says briefs don't decide elections, ballots decide elections. So if you were to look at the state of play that has taken place in the judicial arena, it looks as though the Biden forces have won, the Trump forces are in total retreat. Pennsylvania now presents a very different situation. Um, What happens is there's now a a systematic effort on the part of Republicans to get the legislatures uh, to basically to refuse to certify the outcome of the election on the grounds that they have sufficient evidence that it was tainted with systematic fraud um, in a whole variety of ways that would in effect mean that Trump actually won this. And what's going to happen if they make the case is they're going to try and say, yeah, we'll pull this. This is not a small thing, and it leads to lots of difficulties in understanding what do we mean when we say, as a minority of the judges said in Bush v. Gore, that the legislature shall have the complete power over this process. In Bush v. Gore, the only issue that was immediately at stake was who did the recount, and the statute said it was the Secretary of the State, and the um, uh, basically the, the, the Florida Supreme Court just took the thing away from them. Three justices on the Supreme Court said that was right, that he can't take it away. And the other two signed on to a wishy-washy equal protection opinion. So uh, the legislative position that was taken in Bush v. Gore was representing only three people. Now what they're trying to do is to change the slate of electors, which has never been done ever in the history of the world. And they're doing it on fraud grounds. Um, I have no idea how the evidence is going to play out. I I can imagine the way in which they're going to try to present it. It will start with the midnight miracle that happens, and then they will try to demonstrate systematic fraud by looking at ballots, looking at ballot counts, look at computer controls, and so forth. Uh, I would not try to express any opinion on those issues. Uh, But if it gets there, what's going to happen is it's surely going to go to court. And what's going to happen is the Democrats are going to say this is just a naked political exercise of the most vile form. The Republicans are going to say, um, yes, we believe in majority votes, but you disenfranchise the Pennsylvania majority uh, by cooking the books. And you're going to have to have a trial. And it's not just a recount, Adam. You're going to have to figure out whether or not votes that weren't cast should have been cast and that votes that were cast should not have been cast. And that's a much more difficult situation. I don't know how you get it done within the time frame. And so sooner or later, this is going to march up to the Supreme Court uh, one way or another. Uh, I would say the following. If the Trump forces lose at any stage, that's the end of it. If the Trump forces win at any stage of it, there's going to be a next stage all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and so without venturing any strong opinion one way or another on the fact questions, uh, this is clearly the best thing that they've done. Uh, everybody I know who has thought about this at all has said the performance of the Trump forces thus far on these issues has been absolutely execrable, terrible, confused, horrible. <laughs> and if this claim turns out to be correct, 
The irony is it will be discredited by all the sorry performance that they've had thus far. And so um, I don't look forward to seeing this happen, but when you have very loose election procedures, uh, mail ballots, wave, you know, wave deadlines, and all the rest of that stuff, uh, you're just asking for trouble. And where it turns out an election was decided by, say, 20 or 25,000 votes out of about you know 13 or 14 million votes cast, whatever the number is, it's a very big number, um, uh, this is going to be a problem. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial this morning saying uh, the mail vote situation is too fluid. The vote fraud risk is too great. My view is for future elections, if we survive this one, is that we have to clamp down on some of this stuff. I think election fraud is a serious issue. And one of the most devastating things about it is that it could happen and there could be an utter inability to prove that it has happened. So you need to have stronger ex-ante constraints so as to reduce the probability given that ex-post supervision is relatively weak. So that is a very short summary of, I think, where this thing starts to stand and it's anybody's guess as to how it will come out yeah i basically agree in the days after the election i was very very wary of trump's rhetoric um i think i think we discussed in an earlier episode um my concerns that that the president has a unique duty not to engage in really speculative litigation. Um, on the bright side, the litigation that he's brought has been even worse than speculative. Um, the, the, his lawyers, as you said, have been totally hapless and unable to bring forward any real credible evidence of any wrongdoing, and their 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 pleadings have been ludicrous. Um, so, in many ways, um, City Powell and Rudy Giuliani are the true friends of the court um, by creating cases that are so preposterous that even the Supreme the Supreme Court is under no real danger of getting dragged into these things. Well, that's true. And I mean, and Steph Phoebus is a Trump appointee. Um, and in the Third Circuit, he wrote a very scathing opinion. Uh, but if the Pennsylvania legislature does get involved in the manner that I indicated, yeah. Yeah. it's going to completely change the calculus. Because now what's going to happen is somebody's actually going to put an expert witness on the stand and say, here's the fraud. This is how they did it. Uh, but it's not just Pennsylvania. There are at least three other states where you're going to have to worry about this issue. Right. Uh, they're going to be Georgia with Atlanta. They're going to be uh, Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I've mentioned. There's going to be Milwaukee and Wisconsin, and there's going to be Michigan and Detroit, although there the spread may be large enough that it would not happen. But I can do a little bit of arithmetic, and if uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, and Wisconsin went over, 236 becomes a lot more than, becomes more than 270, I think. Right? Yeah, the numbers just... The numbers have become so large uh, against the Trump administration. Well, I mean, look, it also doesn't help the Trump administration that the popular vote is now 5 million in favor of Biden. Um, And even if you were to say that there was a fraud there, that would change the popular vote by 100, 200, 300,000, enough perhaps to switch an election. But this thing, I mean, if it does get out of the Pennsylvania legislature, I can just imagine the barrage that will come from the press about the way in which this case is going on. It will be deafening. I mean, I'm going to run for cover on this thing. And I just don't think that the Trump administration has put together a legal team or an expert team that's going to be able to, as it were, weep the whirlwind and keep their sanity and get any degree of public confidence unless they could do a lot, lot better than they've done before because their performance to date has been simply abysmal. If any of our listeners want to think through the the state legislature issue, as you you pointed out, Richard, a little while ago, the the U.S. Constitution assigns to the state legislature the, the power to decide how the electors will be 
uh, selected. Um, and it doesn't say much more. It leaves out the question about how much of this is subject to the state constitution, to a state governor's uh, veto, and so on. Or maybe that was what we were discussing before we started taping. Um, but for anybody who wants to read about that, I'd really encourage them to read a paper by Michael Morley of Florida State University. I don't think it's been published in its final form yet, but it's available online. And the title is The Independent State Legislature Doctrine, Federal Elections and the State Constitutions. And it's a really fascinating survey of the history of how this has played out. It really hasn't been litigated in a real way. I think ultimately the best reading of the Constitution is that the state legislatures have great power, but it's subject as always to the state constitution and that the U.S.'s, the U.S. Constitution's brief reference to state legislatures wasn't intended to, to nullify the, the state constitutions that created those state legislatures. But it's an interesting question and an interesting historical question and interesting legal question. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. Take Bush v. Gore and suppose that the Democratic legislature decided to oust um, uh, the Secretary of State from the county. At that point, you know, the shoe was on the other foot. I would say they can't do it. The uh, situation, I think, is it's okay for the legislature to set something and to keep it in stone. But the moment they are no longer behind the veil of ignorance and they want to change the practice, I think that the consistent constitutional practice uh, goes a long way to supplement and to classify, clarify, and even contradict the text. Uh, There's just a very, very heavy burden on any state legislature that in the middle of the game, after the votes have been cast, wants to change the situation. And if the Pennsylvania legislature came forward and said, look, we don't care about the governor. We just deciding to put in a Republican slate uh, and we're going to do it tomorrow. I think that would be a revolution. I mean, the whole system of the electoral college is you take two slates and they're both bound. In the Chiafalo case, um, it was Justice Kagan, who I think quite rightly said that the practice has been sufficiently consistent on this case, uh, that we're not going to allow faithless electors. Well, if you're not going to allow individual people to defect uh, because they want to make a political spectrum. You can't allow the entire state legislature by a partisan by vote to simply say, oh, no, we're not going to do this at all. So if they're going to do it, it's going to have to go through a judicial review. And the burden of proof is going to be pretty heavy on the state to show, I would guess, by clear and convincing evidence that they're right, not only on the existence of fraud, but on the magnitude of the fraud to shift the outcome. So at this point, this looks to me like a very, very long shot. Uh, but remember, this movement is taking place inside the legislature as we speak. And so you just cannot dismiss it as idle theoretical ravings. You have to say to yourself, if they decide to play the next card, what's going to happen afterwards? Because it's not a game that people can walk away from if the state legislature decides to pass that rule. Now, one person who has no doubt at all that President Trump was robbed was Michael Flynn, who made some statements to that effect recently. And as it happens, Michael Flynn is in the news for other reasons. Uh, He's gotten a pardon, or at least that's what President Trump tweeted. Richard, what do you make of uh, this pardon of Michael Flynn? Well, I think it's long overdue. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is is not everybody's favorite hero. The number of comparisons of Trump to Hitler that one sees is very, very large. Uh, But in terms of the way in which the courts have played out, he and his administration have never been on the offense. They've always been on the defense. And that certainly applies with respect to the Russia probes and with respect to the situation on Flint. I thought that he was trapped. I think it was a pretty serious kind of trapping. I thought that Emmett Sullivan was very irresponsible in the way in which he refused to let the government back off on this particular case. I think Trump's position was, and I agree with it, 
And if this thing continues within the judicial framework past January 20th, and there is a Biden administration, Lord knows what's going to happen. So we let him off of this thing because of exactly the right notion. Uh, The grounds for the conviction were highly suspect to begin with. Uh, The guilty pleas were incurred by all sorts of difficult uh, coercion. And one of the serious issues that you always have with the pardon power, and this was true under Obama, is that uh, the professional prosecutors are often extremely hostile to any effort by a president uh, to say that what you're going to do is to let somebody off. In this case, it's not quite that because the professional prosecutors are bar and his company and they're strongly for it. Uh, but there's no question that probably inside the bureaucracy, there's going to be a lot of uneasiness. But I think in the end that this was probably the right call. Um, I don't think that he should make many more calls like this. One of the questions you're going to worry about is when Biden gets into office, is he going to take some people who were involved in the whole Russia situation and who would dismiss from office and give them kinds of pardons against future criminal activity. And another question, are the Democrats actually going to strive to say, well, we've always regarded Trump as a criminal and we're now going to try and basically give criminal prosecutions against him at either the federal level or at the state level. And I'm against both of those things. I think generally political revenge against disappointed president powers, whether the cases are justified or not, are just too much of a risk. It turns the United States states into a banana republican we have enough problems now and we don't need this going forward i for one thought that uh, gerald ford was probably right to pardon richard nixon notwithstanding the pain because he didn't want it to carry over and i think we're pretty clear that not only did he pardon nixon but he probably cost himself the election in 1976 i don't know what your views are but those are mine uh, my views are pretty different i think that this pardon was absolutely wrong I mean, I agree with you that I think Flynn was mistreated in many ways by the prosecutors. I think Eli Lake's reporting on this for commentary on Bloomberg is really definitive. I don't think that the investigations into Flynn at the very beginning were unwarranted. He was doing some strange stuff both before the election and after the election. I don't think that the Justice Department under Obama was wrong, or or the national security folks under Obama were wrong to look into this. I think they were wrong to carry it on as long as they did. Um, And I think that it was justifiable for Barr to try to pull down the prosecution of Flynn when he did. I think that Sullivan, Judge Sullivan, overstepped his boundaries in the way he's conducted that case, the way he brought in that other judge who had been critical of of Flynn, of the former judge, I'm blanking on his name now, to come in and serve as sort of a surrogate prosecutor. I think that was all wrong, and, and I think Barr was justified in trying to end the prosecution. But a pardon seems to me something different. It's such a, a powerful uh, but delicate and dangerous tool in, in the constitutional system. Um, if, if President Biden two months from now decided to pardon Flynn to settle the matter in sort of a Gerald Ford way, I, I'd be in favor of that. I hope that President Biden pardons Trump, actually, um, and puts an end to the threat of just constant um, investigation of one's political opponents. Um, I think that we sh- we ought to see more use of pardons in that way, um, where people are not pardoning their their friends and allies and and maybe even co conspirators, but but pardoning the people with whom they they are not politically aligned. The pardon is supposed to be a tool of of presidential sort of grace self-restraint on behalf of the executive branch to those who have been unfairly targeted. When the president starts using it for his own friends, even if it's justified, 
Um, it, it takes on a very different look, and I'd be very wary of seeing the pardon power be weaponized. Trump hasn't inve- invented that. We saw what Bill Clinton did on his way out of office. The Mark Rich was the most famous one. I can't remember the other ones. Maybe didn't he commute Patty Hearst or something? I can't remember. Something Any like and his, his friends, friends from Arkansas that he he helped out. Um, but I'd be very, very wary of seeing it happen now. I am even before, I mean, one of the reasons why I opposed Trump from the very beginning was the weaponization of prosecutions, the politicization of prosecutions, the whole lock her up movement that Trump was, you know, seizing in, in, in the summer of 2016, which Democrats had done in their own way in years earlier. I think this is one of the most dangerous things in all of politics, and I really hope it ends. But I don't want to see it end by the president protecting his own friends. And and as you said, this will take on a much different light depending on who else Trump pardons, whether he pardons other allies, whether he pardons himself. Um, someday the Flynn pardon may be one of many that's that's discussed together. And of course, Flynn has his own case and he deserves that case to be judged on its own merits. But I really would prefer to see this ended by the Justice Department um, and not by the president pardoning his his friend and ally. Well, I think you, the Justice Department did try to end it, and Sullivan has prevented that, and the thing is now still embroiled in litigation so that I think it will carry over. Mm-hmm. I think Flynn has suffered enough. I mean, he's paid God knows how much in legal fees. His entire life has been wrecked. His son has been subject to investigation, and there were, I think, wholly improper threats to Flynn to say, either you confess or we're going to indict him. Yeah. Uh, what you said is that the, the behavior was execrable. Uh, it's unfortunate that Trump is the only one to pardon him, but I think it is uh, if he turns out and he wants to go after lesser operatives who are popular on more dubious grounds, well, I will join you. But I, I don't think, in effect, that uh, it is a strong enough argument to say I admit the abuse in this particular case, but thinks that it sets a wrong precedent. The way I would read it is we admit the abuse in this precedent, and this sets the standard that any other pardon by the Trump administration has to meet. And so under those circumstances, um, I, I think it's okay. So uh, he hasn't indicated anything else that he's done on this. This is not like Mark Rich campaign contributions and so forth. Uh, so I'm not particularly troubled about this particular case. And in fact, I mean, one of the ironies about the Trump administration is I can't think of any particular prosecution that they've engaged in as opposed to inexcusable rhetoric that they've engaged in, which has taken the power of the state and put it against somebody. Uh, there's no parallel situation uh, to either the Trump impeachment or to the Mueller investigations, which Trump or Republicans have initiated during the last uh, four years. And I think that's that's worth kind of taking into account. One of the great tragedies of Donald Trump, his rhetoric is so destructive and so divisive, uh, and his bark is always worse than his bite. And what he does is he discredits himself by the way in which he talks. If this man never knew how to tweet, um, he probably would have been reelected. If there had not been the COVID situation, I'm pretty sure he would have been reelected. If he controlled himself during the debate, the first debate with Biden, my guess is it would have changed the outcome. Uh, so Donald Trump is his own worst enemy, but I don't think his own failings uh, should under these circumstances be used to doing Michael Flynn, who as best I can tell has been made a victim of rather ugly uh, kinds of partisan behavior on the other side. And once you admit that, I'm willing to take the, the flack about other cases and to hope that Trump does not essentially cheapen the uh, 
pardon that he's given to Flynn by announcing he's doing it for characters whose claim for a pardon are much more dubious than the ones that Michael Flynn could raise. So that's where I come out on this. Well, what about what about the fact that Flynn pl- pleaded guilty? I mean, I understand that there there are allegations that he pleaded guilty in order to protect his son. Maybe he did. That sounds plausible to me. But it means that he perjured himself when he when he pleaded guilty. Again, I think that might be that might not block the Justice Department from wanting to dismiss the case. Um, plea bargains are often entered into because the government, you know, more because the government has leverage or is claiming leverage. Um, but he did plead guilty. It's not like he's been protesting his innocence the whole time. No, no, no. But he did plead guilty as the lesser of evils. I think in effect Maybe. what happens is that argument is too powerful because it means that nobody who ever pleads guilty under any other circumstances is entitled to a pardon. And I think the reason the pardon power is done this way is that you can certainly pardon somebody who's been convicted, let alone pleaded. And so I don't think it's a bar to this. The power is absolute. My view is what you would indicate is a surely a relevant consideration, but it's overwhelmed by your original description that you think he's been maltreated. I think he's been maltreated. And um, I don't think the other people who are on the block have been maltreated. And so for them, I would oppose it. I mean, one of the interesting things, Adam, as we know, is that the pardon power takes place in one of two ways. Uh, There is an elaborate office inside the uh, executive branch to review huge numbers of cases and to treat them as quasi-judicial determination take hearing on them, and then to send recommendations to the president. That's because no sane president wants to have the power of life and death over the hundreds of cases that could come into the office. But then there are a few political cases like this one that just don't go through that circuit. Most of the time, I think it's a mistake. Uh, But in the Flynn case, I'm willing to give with it. So I will yield to you if it turns out that Trump treats this as part of a procession, that there's something deeply wrong with the way in which he's behaved. But on the individual case, and and there's no indication yet that he plans to pardon anybody else. I can't think. Can you think of anybody else in the Trump administration um, who has been victimized or treated the way in which Flynn has? I can't think of anybody. Uh, so I think it's going to be a self-limiting condition unless you could explain or somebody else could explain who else is likely to be subject to criminal prosecution and why it is that that person should be pardoned. Um, I think it would be wholly improper for Trump to start to pardon people who've never been prosecuted um, for anything because the records are completely immature. Um, his executive orders are not nearly as crazy as this rhetoric. So I'm willing to sort of let this one fly. I think we're going to have to disagree on this one. Uh, I don't know who's reasonable or not, but that's my view. I am uh, I'm moved by your plea, but not persuaded by it. Well, let me, let me add the one other thing I, I, I left out. Um, and I don't know if this will move you or not. I mean, it's true. You said earlier, you know, what, what prosecutions have been, I can't remember the word you used, but have been... Um, commenced against um, Trump's enemies. It's true. We've had the Justice Department and others sort of blocking him along the way. But you look at how much he's called for investigations of his enemies. And sometimes he's even gotten them. I mean, the Durham investigation, it's within the Justice Department, but it's focused on the people who served under President Obama. This is an investigation of President Trump's enemies as much as anything. And maybe they deserve to be investigated. Well, I mean, but but, the point about that is there was already an independent investigation by horror, which took up part of the process and not the rest of it. And so I think, in effect, this is not sort of doing something. And the interesting feature about this report was supposed to come out in June, right? Mm -hmm. And he's yet to issue it. 
Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't think it's actually going to be published because, uh, I mean, why would you hold it off? I mean, everybody's starting to talk about well, it's all strategic and all tactical. But if you wanted to have a bombshell, the time to release it is either when it's hot as an issue or just before the election. Um, I don't know what it does. Uh, nor has Trump released any of the classified papers that might have served to exonerate him. And I regard that behavior is very, very puzzling. So I don't think we have a record here of him really going to the mat on, on these cases. Um, I agree with you. I, I think his rhetoric is the most dangerous thing in the world, um, uh, except for the actions. So, uh, well, I, I, but a president's rhetoric can't just be easily I, separated I from his actions. I mean, what the stuff that, I mean, we, you and I went around and around on this for so long, but what he was saying to the Ukrainians, was that rhetoric or was that actions? I mean, it was both. Uh, no, my view about that is when you're sitting in a room with uh, 26 people from each side listening into a conversation, um, this was flattery on both sides. We love you. I'm stroking you. You are stroking me. By the way, I would like your help with my fractious NATO enemies. Um, I did not think that was an impeachable offense. I, I'm still completely unpersuaded. As a political matter, I think you have to meet a following test. You have to get some members in numbers of your own party to desert you before impeachments can go. That's what happened to Richard Nixon, rightly so. In this case, I don't I don't think that it cut it. In fact, I think the prosecution that they put uh, went one step too far because even after the initial phone call, they never got the second and third tier level of evidence that would treat this as part of a larger scheme. And we do know that in the end, the aid was actually given um, after there was a huge internal battle that was fought. And so I regarded that as politics as usual. And so I'm still, um, I'm not thrilled about the way in which Trump handled all of these things, uh, uh, but I don't see that this particular situation will go down as a miscarriage of justice. It's certainly uh, what uh, Bill Clinton did with the rich uh, part was much worse than what happened here. So I think we still disagree. Yeah, we do. We do. But um Maybe we'll leave it at that, and maybe we'll re- we will or we won't return to the pardon issue over the next uh, well, next couple me. of months. Right? <laughs> I'll pardon you, <laughs> Richard. We're, we're taping this on the Monday after uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. Do you want to share with listeners uh, anything about how you how you spent your holiday or what you're grateful for? Well, I'm grateful for the fact that my family seems to be well, both near and far, uh, and I hope that the, what will happen is that we will usher in against all odds an era of good good uh, of good feelings, and that the trans Transitions that are going to take place in power, however they emerge, are done smoothly and well through cooperation. I think transitions are always very, very dangerous, and uh, it takes a little bit of give on both sides in order to make them better, and I hope that we find them. So this is a message trying to ease the transition rather than to exacerbate it. Well, how could I top that? I'll agree, I'll agree and we'll leave it at that. Okay, um, great. Richard, thanks as always uh, for joining us today. I know I, I know I always enjoy our conversations. It's always fun. Take care. You too. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.